Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today I'm going to be having a discussion with my friend Alyssa Galob about the political arm of the Canadian pro-life movement. Taking a look at how pro-life activists are having an impact on election races right across this country. Now she uh, runs an organization called Right Now with her business partner Scott Hayward. And they've attracted a lot of headlines in recent years over some of the work that they've done, especially on the federal leadership race. And one of the things I find very interesting is that organizations like Press Progress, which is this sort of left-wing media watchdog, uh, they, they find the group right now to be quite a threatening group, and they're constantly warning about the insidious influence of pro-lifers in Canadian politics, which, of course, for those of us who are pro-life, is a very good sign. Now, many of you will know that I serve as communications director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, and in that capacity, we've I've had the privilege of partnering with Alyssa and Scott many times over the last couple of years, and I've got to see their organization up close and personal, and I have to say it's one of the most impressive organizations I have seen in a very, very long time. When it comes to political activism, they're constantly innovative, they know what they're doing, and, well, quite frankly, uh, Alyssa Globe will be, will be explaining a few of their organization's big successes, which more or less speak for themselves. And so, without further introduction, here is a conversation with my friend Alyssa Globe of the Pro-Life Political Organization Group right now. When did we actually first meet? I don't think you're going to like this answer. <laughs> why, why? When did we? Are you remembering something I'm not? Well, I I had just started working at Campaign Life Coalition right out of university, and I think I mean I think it was either JoJo or Stephanie asked me to come to the crash course, right in Calgary, in Alberta, yeah. And uh, so I I convinced them to send me there, and uh, and so I remember like everybody like arriving and everybody gathering around you like you were the kingpin, and everyone was excited to talk to you and stuff. And I don't me remember and my, any like, of that pridefulness. It's like, oh, this guy's the most popular one. I'm not going to go over there. <laughs> and so you just hung out and hated me on the other side. Was this, which year was this? Was this 2011 or 2012? <laughs> this was 2011. Right. So that, was the, that would be the first year that I started working for CCBR. Yeah. But, but, but you were an intern prior, right? No, actually, I wasn't. I um, helped. I helped Stephanie Gray fundraise for CCBR's very first ever internship in 2010. But I, I came on in in January of 2011. But I never took the internship program. I, it's one of the things I always wished I could have done, especially after we developed it further. My complaint about CCBR's internship is usually that I never got to take it because it's quite a good program now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think the second time I met you, actually, because I'm just trying to figure out, because for a while I was out west. I was a pro-lifer yeah. working in Vancouver, uh, and then I went to Simon Fraser University, and I ran the club there, and then I worked for CCBR out of Calgary. And then they sent me east in January of 2012 to start our, our eastern operation, which is now mm-hmm. two offices out here. And I think, if I recall correctly, that the first time we met up in Toronto was you asked me to speak at the defund rally that Campaign Life Coalition Youth was hosting at Queen's Park. Uh-huh. Yeah. And all I remember of yeah. that is it was extremely cold, and I was the only yeah. one that wanted to have a smoke. <laughs> yeah, and then I think right before that, it was either right before that or right after that, I invited you 
I, I got a lot of young people working in the movement in Toronto together and uh, to all like hang out and have dinner and meet each other. And we were all sitting around and I had also invited this other person. And um, when when that person walked in, I, I introduced myself to her like I hadn't met her before, um, li- forgetting that I literally had met her the day before at another conference. And uh, it was quite embarrassing, but that's, <laughs> that's the uh, second time that I remember us getting together in Toronto and then the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, on, a, on a totally side note, do you ever feel like, like I often have to do a bunch of speaking engagements in a single month. And if, if I've met somebody and had a conversation with them, I'm really good at remembering exactly what we talked about. But sometimes it's very hard to remember, you know, if you do a talk, you can meet 20, 30 people and get told 20, 30 names. Do you have any tricks that you use for trying to remember everybody that you've met and all the names that you've uh, heard? My tricks are, I feel like, I'm, uh, they're not uh, appropriate to say on, <laughs> oh, come on. on air. Because have, if you ever seen The Office, Michael Scott has certain tricks that he uses to remember people, and it's like glasses person or baldy or things like that, and that's kind of how I remember. Okay. Yeah, see, my problem is I'll remember, if somebody comes up to me, I'll remember what I talked about with them and have no idea what their name is. And I would actually prefer yeah. it to be the reverse. I prefer to remember who they were, but not remember what we talked about, because that's much easier. Yeah, and I because I have such trouble with names and faces, especially the more that you meet people, I automatically assume that no one remembers my name. If, like if I'm meeting a politician or a speaker or something, so I always just say, like, Hey, nice to see you again, Alyssa, and like, and remind them. And uh, I think that's the best way. <laughs> I think you should all kind of practice that, so awkward situations don't happen. <laughs> so, since this is the one thing we get asked the most about, and this is the first time you've been on this podcast, we might as well talk about it. Which is the the craziest thing that you've ever done, and probably the height of your career. Our Notre Dame tour in 2015. Mm-hmm. What's the yeah. one when people ask you about this? What's the one memory that immediately stands out? for you about this tour. And just for those of you who are listening and have no idea what we're talking about, the No to Trudeau tour was a speaking tour that Alyssa, myself, and my colleague Alex van der Breinhorst, who still works for CCBR out of our Calgary office, and we literally drove in a huge bus with a picture of Justin Trudeau's face on the side with a big X through it from Vancouver Island uh, all the way to the Maritimes where we flew to Newfoundland and spoke there as well. So we spoke in uh, every single province except Quebec where we got weird shady looks as we drove across in our big anti-Trudeau vehicle. And it was, suffice it to say, a very, very long road trip, even though it was in, I think, three separate segments. And the speaking tour was basically to raise awareness about different activism that Campaign Life Coalition Youth and CCBR would be doing throughout 2015, which included uh, doing a lot of phone calls, campaigning for pro-life politicians, and hand-delivering one million postcards. So what's the memory that sticks out for you about that road trip? Uh, there's so many, but honestly, when I think of that road trip, the very first thing that pops into my head is you guys, um, having your coffee cup in your shoes. Okay, that worked very well. (laughs) Using your shoes as coffee holders, because there were no coffee holders, and you guys needed your coffee every day, and it was quite (laughs) entertaining for me, given that the bus had, like, nothing inside of it except for, like, three seats. To be completely fair, if you had used your shoe as a coffee holder, you might not have had to take a nap on an air mattress <laughs> in the back of the bus to the Rockies. 
in which you probably yeah. bounced at four feet at one point. <laughs> which, that was like two days before the bus froze solid in Calgary, and then two nights in a row in Edmonton, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I'm surprised that thing lasted, but... Uh, yeah, I'm surprised that all of our friendships held out that long, but it <laughs> it apparently ended up working out fine. And then I drove throughout PEI, and the snow had just melted, and yes. so there were gigantic potholes in the road. I remember. My spine remembers that. <laughs> now, you almost killed us, and then Alex was so worried that you were going to kill us that he sat right behind the driver's seat and gave you unwanted advice for about an hour, if my memory, if I recall that correctly. Everybody loves backseat driving. I don't know what you're talking about. I also remember when we were in Victoria, um, the very first talk that we did, um, there were a couple hecklers there, like people who were opposing us, and they were asking a ton of questions afterwards. And I remember this one guy asking this question in this deep, like, sultry voice. And I said to him, wow, like, before we answered, I said, like, wow, that's, you have a great voice, like you should be on the radio. And he's like, I am a radio. <laughs> I am on the radio. I'm on the main host of whatever radio station. Yeah, exactly. A tiny rinky-dink show that nobody cared about in Vancouver <laughs> Island. Yeah, I know. He was very pleased by that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Buttered him up a little before and so destroying the, the, the answers. The one thing I really wanted to review on this podcast and the main point of the podcast, and I'm sure we'll end up bumping into a lot of stories on the way there since we've worked for three different organizations when we've known each other, but we've never worked for the same organization. And that's when you left Campaign Life Coalition, which is the organization we had partnered with in 2015 when we did the No to Trudeau tour, and you ended up leaving to uh, co-found the political organization right now uh, with our mutual friend and your business partner, Scott Hayward. So mm-hmm. kind of explain how that went about, because it, it's kind of interesting in the Canadian pro-life movement, for those who aren't familiar with it, there's been kind of this massive turnover uh, just in the last 10 years, where prior to CCBR launching a national educational plan in 2011, um, there was a lot of regional educational groups, but no one overarching organization that actually had a plan to shift public opinion. Um, and then Prior to that as well, there was no political organization with the exception of Campaign Life Coalition. And now first there was uh, We Need a Law with Mike Shooten. There was the Association for Reform Political Action, uh, which, of course, more, catered more specifically uh, to one religious group of Canadians. And then now there's, there's Right Now. So there's been kind of a, a whole bunch of new organizations with new visions that have started up just in the last decade and just when a lot of people thought the pro-life movement was pretty stagnant. So how did that come about? Well, the catalyst was really the 2015 election because there were so many pro-life candidates that needed help from pro-life supporters. So when I was working at my old job, they would call all the time. They would say, we need volunteers. We need help. If we don't get this help, we're going to lose. Like, our seats are in jeopardy. And so I would try to recruit pro-lifers. I would try to get them to help and volunteer and show them the effectiveness of it. Um but it was already too late. It was election time, and, and we needed them now, and a lot of people were very uncomfortable participating in that type of activism. And so we weren't able to get the volunteers needed, and many pro-life candidates lost by less than 100 votes, some by only 100. Um, and we went from having 80 pro-life MPs uh, to 40. We lost half of our pro-life MPs in the last federal election. Yeah. And so I started to really analyze why that was the case. And 
And one of the reasons why was because there was no national pro-life organization that was solely focused on nominating and electing pro-life candidates. Um, because like my old job, we, we, did, we did get involved in some political nominations and some elections, but they're also, uh, they also do so many other campaigns. They organize the March for Life and the Life Chain and the 40 Days for Life. And there are, you know, 338 federal ridings. There's 87 ridings provincially in Alberta. There's 127 in Ontario, and the list goes on. So you literally need to focus completely and utterly on these nominations or, or elections, or we're not going to be able to move forward politically. And so we decided that, uh, you know, we were going to, we were going to start that, we were going to fill that void and start that organization that didn't otherwise exist. And, you know, it was, it was during a, you know, a, a very interesting time, both in our, in our personal lives and um, also professionally, like I had worked full time in the pro-life movement for six years and, and it was kind of reevaluate as a youth coordinator. And I wasn't, I was getting increasingly not a youth anymore. So I right. was kind of trying to evaluate what I was going to do. And so, um, so one of the first campaigns that we worked on was actually uh, Sam Osterhoff's nomination campaign in the Niagara area. And I mean, what a way to start off an organization. <laughs> it's yeah. one of the biggest political upsets in like in Canadian history, really. Um, so that was really, really encouraging and really positive. And then, of course, right after that, we started working on the federal conservative leadership campaign, which got a lot of uh, publicity and uh, from and a lot of people turning towards our organization because we made it as easy as possible to buy a membership and vote. Like, we know that the process can be really difficult and that people don't have time to sit down and research how to do things and which candidates stand for what, like, Pro-lifers are busy. They have big families. They have jobs. They have, um, you know, they have all these other things that are going on in their lives. And usually, they're involved in other charity work. And so, we want to make it as easy and efficient as possible to elect pro-life candidates, which means making it as easy and effective for them to vote for those pro-life candidates or help and volunteer for those pro-life candidates. Yeah, so as somebody who's friends with you guys, I know the first couple of years of starting off right now nearly killed you guys because of how much work you had to do with just the two of you. And the trial by fire for your organization, correct me if I'm wrong, was kind of the conservative leadership race. It was, you started your own organization, and then it was one thing after another. And politics is always perpetual motion, but I would argue that a lot of stuff hit you guys in a very short amount of time very quickly. So how did the, how did you, what did you guys learn from the leadership race and how did you realize the amount of influence you could have uh, working on that leadership race? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of things I think that that people don't know. And, and then I'm very open to talking about because we, we basically announced that we were going to start our organization in February of 2016 and then literally a month later, my dad suddenly passed away. And Scott had just moved from Manitoba, left his friends and family and everyone he knows to come live in downtown Toronto to work for the pro-life movement. And then suddenly his business partner was off the grid because I moved home to help with uh, my family situation. And so for a good, like, two or three months, I was trying to work when I could, but he basically didn't know what the future held. And he just plugged, he just kept kept on trucking. He kept, you know, updating the database and, and working on our website and doing all the initial things that we needed to, to officially launch. And so, you know, 
a big chunk of the reason why we were so successful when we were able to get off the ground was because of the hard work and determination that Scott did and the understanding um, that comes with facing uh, something so tragic right. um, with your business partner. So, uh, so when that kind of, when we kind of overcame that hurdle and I, ha- and I moved back to Toronto, one of the first things that we did work on was the federal leadership race. And, um, and so I, I think that, you know, because there were so many candidates and because this leadership races are so important, especially um, in, in political parties, because they don't happen very often. Like the last federal conservative leadership race was like 13 or 14 years ago from when the new one was announced. So, um, and we had a prime minister and a leader of the conservative party who was increasingly becoming more and more hostile to pro-lifers right. for various reasons, but just ended up like the last thing that he did was make sure that the sex selective abortion bill wasn't even was deemed unvotable and we couldn't even debate or talk about sex selective abortion. So um, we were hitting, we were hitting a wall there. So it was a very a positive thing to come from that, uh, to come from such a negative thing as to lose the election. So uh, it was a, it was a, it's a difficult process. And, and so we wanted, like I said, we wanted to make it as easy as possible. So Basically, we, we interviewed 11 out of the 13 candidates. There were only like three, no, there are only two candidates that refused to answer our interview, which, you know, from a, as a new organization that had little political capital at the time, I thought was a great success um, because, you know, they were, they were open to discussing these issues, which was really positive. And so we ranked each of the, the uh, pro or each of the candidates based on three things. And one was their interview. The other was their voting record, and the third was their winnability. And an interesting side note about the winnability is that a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but some people have questioned our methods to winnability because we check out what their following is on social media, if they are bilingual, if they speak French, if they've been a cabinet minister. And, and sometimes people think some of those things don't matter. But my business partner is an accountant, and so all he sees is numbers. That's how he views the world. I kind of say that he's like Neo in the Matrix, right. and it's right. just like numbers everywhere. But we, he he basically crunched the numbers. We've been we've been involved in four or five leadership races in the last two years, and in each of those leadership races, we've only been off by like one point in terms of our winnability and how they the candidates won versus how we ranked them with their winnability. So. The, the structure that we have for that winnability factor is very, very effective, and I'm not sure if we can get any more close, uh, closer to what we already have. So, so we so winnability is is just as important as their voting record and their pro life answers um, to those questions, and we we ranked the ballot all, all the way through so we could get the most supportable candidate, and we ended up with Andrew Shear, who won by you know less than one percent of the vote, who um, is is known to be a pro-life, uh, pro-life politician. He has five kids. His wife is very pro-life. And, uh, and, a lot, and everybody likes him. Like, he's able to portray the message in a way that a lot of people that can stomach, even if they aren't pro-life. And I appreciate that about him. So ever since then, I think that it's a very encouraging sign that we have pro-life, po- uh, pro-life leaders and a lot of the major... Uh, parties in most of the provinces so far, and we're we're currently working in Nova Scotia in that leadership race, and and so there's definitely a t- I see a huge tide turning with pol- in politics 
with especially in terms of the pro-life issue in Canada and portraying it in a way that people understand, uh, finding common ground, taking an incremental approach and just getting getting involved in the grassroots level, like getting pro-lifers involved in that nomination process because very few people get involved and there are enough pro-life uh, voters in each of the ridings to make a tangible difference because oftentimes these candidates lose by 10, 11 votes in their you know, for pro-lifers, that's like one family. Yeah. It's <laughs> family to show up to vote. And yeah. Win. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, renowned Osterhoff cousins had a lot to do with uh, <laughs> some nomination races. Exactly. Now, I was going to ask, if, if you read the Received Wisdom, and like this is even in the last year, year and a half, um, the analysis of, uh, of social conservatives as a political force, pro-lifers as a political force, is that we're toxic, and that no politician, regardless of how good his record is, like Andrew Scheer had a perfect voting record, Jason Kenney had a perfect voting record, but that there's no way they're ever going to be able to touch our issue. And the theory behind this is that these issues are too divisive to touch, and they ignore the fact that polls indicate 60% of Canadians would support some form of legislation, and that 80% of Canadians don't know that abortion is legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. But there's this idea that was very much mainstreamed by our former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, which most people don't know, but he sort of began this idea that a conservative can only get elected if he offloads pro-lifers and social conservatives. And he started very early when he was campaigning against Stockwell Day for the leadership of the Canadian Alliance Party. Uh, one of his main talking points was that Stockwell Day was too social conservative to win. Uh, the day after he got elected, there was a documentary that aired on the CBC featuring a, uh, a prominent Harper strategist who said that Stephen Harper knew that he could keep SOCONs in line, keep them quiet, and never actually give them anything. So there's a, about a decade-old idea in, in conservative politics here in Canada that you can't win if you do anything marginally pro-life, even though the polls don't support that position. So how do we start to get around that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, the main issue uh, in the country. And, you know, <clears throat> the first thing is that it's interesting that, you know, many people think that it's, or, or, or Harper or certain conservatives think that it's such a divisive issue when, mm-hmm. you know, Andrew Scheer won because he had those so-called on boards. And if he didn't, he wouldn't have won. So they don't actually, they don't actually, um, prevent you from win- winning elections. They help you from winning elections. But I know that's internal politics, but still, um, there are, it's a, it's a significant voter block that cannot be ignored. Um, and, and the numbers prove that. So um, I think the best way to kind of bypass, you know, being overlooked, you know, keeping us in line, keeping SOCOMs in line and ever giving us anything is by nominating um, effective candidates. And, you know, you can't really, you can't really give or expect pro-life politicians to give you, to go to bat for you if you don't ever give them a bat. And the right. best way that we can give them a bat is by giving them a caucus. <laughs> because oftentimes it's usually a small number of kind of hardcore pro-life uh, politicians who will, you know, speak out or, or deal with these issues. And it's not the majority. And so when we get a significant, if not a majority in within the caucus, we'll be able to start passing uh, legislation. It's a numbers game at the end of the day. And and it's a numbers game that we can win because nominations, like I said, are easily won. And if we focus our attention and our direction on that very effective, in that very effective way, then we'll start to see uh, legislation passed. 
so it's, it's one of the reasons why I moved to Alberta because currently there's uh, nom- there are nominations happening for the upcoming provincial election, and Jason Kenney I would put in the same boat as Andrew Shear, like they both are obviously pro-life and care about this issue, um, but they're both they're both trying to win an election as well and not you know have that element be a primary focus because there are people within the party and of course across the province and the country that don't necessarily agree. And so the number one thing pro-lifers have to do is have measured expectations. Right. Just because we elect a Sam Osterhoff or just because we elect, you know, a Brad Trost or something doesn't mean that they can just force pro-life legislation through. That's not the way that the democratic process works. And if you if you expect them to die on the sword for this issue, then that's also not going to do anything for us. Like, they actually need to be in the legislature to have influence and to um, stand up at the right time to vote along with their colleagues in order for us to actually get anywhere. It's That's just the democratic process. So, for one, it's to have measured expectations it's, and to celebrate the wins. Every single time we nominate a pro-life candidate, it is a huge win. It's an extra seat in it's a potentially extra seat in the legislature and it's an extra vote, which is of course what we need. Um, and so, yeah. And on top of that, um, so to have measured expectations and then secondly to, to get involved in an effective way. Oftentimes I think pro-life organizations ask volunteers to, you know, do certain things where you don't really see the results of said project or said campaign and we get discouraged because we're like we spent a week or a month or a day or you know six hours doing something and we literally have not seen the results of that and we just kind of have to wish and hope that something changed somewhere in someone's mind or whatever and well you know at times that's okay when it comes to getting involved in nominations and elections we can statistically prove that each volunteer exponentially increases a candidate's chances of winning and and then you can see the results right away with that election um, with your vote with um, your participation and helping a, a candidate and I think that's very fruitful and encouraging for the pro-life movement because we can celebrate each win that we have and there's quite a few of them across the country so it's the best way to to kind of bypass the fact that when people say that we're toxic or that you'll never touch this issue or it's too divisive, is to elect to get involved in nominating and electing well-rounded candidates who can use the really good talking points that We Need a Law and CCPR and our organization and others put forward that present a reasonable incremental approach to passing legislation to finding that common ground, like late-term abortion restrictions and other things, and focusing on those things and pushing them forward and working that way than trying to, you know, force an issue that most people don't agree with or expect people to die on the sword right. um, and, and not get us anywhere. So two other questions based on what you've just said. First of all, um, you said celebrate every win. And I know that especially for pro-lifers who follow politics, um, hearing about a few wins would probably put people in a pretty good mood and would make them, uh, would incentivize them to get involved. And so the second question will be, how specifically can people get tangibly involved right now, like right after they're done listening to this conversation? Well, like I said, in Alberta, we have 87, there's 87 ridings. We have over 50 pro-life candidates um, that we've identified that are running. Uh, 20, 23 of them have already won or have been acclaimed. There was actually two nominations this week where two more pro-life 
uh, candidates were uh, nominated, which is very exciting. One, uh, one of our strongest uh, pro-life candidates just dominated, like blew his opposition out of the water, which is very <laughs> exciting. Um, so that that's a, a huge win here in the province. So um, how, if you live in Alberta, to contact us and we will connect you with your with the nearest pro-life candidate because these nominations, there are nominations happening next week and the week after and next month and up until October, potentially November. So within the next few months, it's make or break time in this province to ensure that we nominate um, a majority of pro-life candidates. Federally, we are targeting 50 swing ridings. So ridings that won by the smallest amount of votes uh, and that are currently held by pro-abortion MPs and we're going to try and replace them with pro-life ones by the next election. And these ridings are all over the country. We even have one riding in Nunavut. So <laughs> it doesn't matter where you live in the country, there are uh, those ridings helping those pro-life candidates. Right. So those are the top two things and the two campaigns that we're working on right now, no pun intended, and uh, <laughs> so that people can, uh, can get involved the minute they, they uh, turn this off. Okay, I will ask you a dangerous question, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, is I know you have a lot of conversations with political insiders because it's your job to have those conversations. Could you tell our listeners any completely anonymous things that they've said to you that would encourage the pro-life movement to keep pushing and to get way more involved than they are now? Mm-hmm. Oh, so many. Like, it, I was actually kind of fearful when we first started this. Like, I wasn't sure how the reception was going to be. Right. Um, and it was it was better and more overwhelming than I ever had anticipated. And so probably one of my favorite stories is that I had dinner with a very high profile uh, politician when I was in Ottawa for a conference. And we talked all about, you know, the issues that the pro-life movement has had in the past, why pro-life legislation has never been, been passed in, in government and just kind of, you know, talked for, uh, about so many different areas and so many different issues with regards to the pro-life movement. It, it was clearly an issue that was close to his heart. And then, um, so after dinner, you know, we, we said thank you, we left, and the next day I, at the conference, I actually passed by this politician, and uh, they stopped. They stopped and they said, like, thank you so much for, for having this meeting with me. And then they said, I am so excited about the work that you're you're doing. We've been waiting for an organization like yours for 20 years. <laughs> That's fantastic. And it was a very sincere. He said it in a very sincere way, and that uh, has really motivated me because every time I kind of get discouraged or thinking, you know, people aren't listening or we're not getting, you know, people aren't volunteering or, or just, you know, getting kind of depressed at times, I I rethink, replay those words in my head and, and know that um, there is no other organization like ours that exists. If we don't continue on doing this work, then we're not going to get anywhere politically in the pro-life movement and that we need to grow and we need to work with other organizations that are doing effective work and partner and have and have that unity moving forward um, because that's what's going to that's what's going to make us win. And so I think that was that was pretty exciting. All right, last question. How can people reach you guys, get a hold of you guys, give all the email addresses and websites that people need? Yeah, I mean, we're everywhere. So we're all over the internet. So our website is it starts right now .ca. Um, Our Instagram and Twitter is at rightnowhq. Um, and our Facebook page is, is the same. 
and our phone numbers are on there. We're big into texting. We love to communicate with people um, as much as possible, whether it's Facebook, Facebook Messenger or texting, like, in a very direct way. So feel free to get in touch with us. And, uh, and yeah, the more, the more people that we can recruit just during this election period, the more effective we'll be and the outcome of the election. So, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting times, and I'm really, I'm really pumped for these provincial and federal elections, for sure. Well, thanks for coming on to chat about your organization. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with pro-life activist Alyssa Galop. This show is brought to you by Total Rentals. And for those of you who are interested in listening to previous shows, you can find them on iTunes, on YouTube, or at thebridgehead.ca, as well as on SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.